I'm Nicole Kasperson, fintech journalist, and this is What the Fintech. As a journalist who has covered the finance sector over the last five years, I've had the opportunity to interview and engage with some of the best minds in the space. The media landscape is changing, and financial services is grabbing the attention of a more diversified audience than ever before. As a member of that growing demographic, I will provide direct access to the inner workings of a complex industry while bringing an unconventional perspective to news coverage. Leaving big bank earning reports to the boring traditional media firms, I'll focus on the tech-savvy apps, digital investing platforms, challenger banks, and payment giants to drive relevant content that looks forward to disruption instead of fearing it. We are taking a brief break to share a message from our friends over at Yield Street. Bring your portfolio to the future with alternative investments. Yield Street's investment products are designed to generate income and build long-term wealth. Explore investments in art, real estate, venture capital, and more, with minimum starting at $500. You deserve access to alternative investments traditionally reserved for only the ultra-wealthy. Now, back to the show. What is good, everyone, and welcome to What the Fintech, the podcast for fintech professionals who are ready to shape the future of our industry with innovation and inclusion. I'm your host, Nicole Kasperson, and today I'm interviewing Flori Marquez. She's the co-founder of BlockFi, a fintech app that builds a bridge between cryptocurrencies and traditional wealth management products like crypto-backed loans and credit cards. Flori has spent her career managing alternative lending products. In the marketplace lending industry, she helped build, scale, and optimize a $125 million portfolio for Bond Street, which was acquired by Goldman Sachs. Prior to Bond Street, Flory helped develop and maintain institutional partnerships at Oak Hill Advisors, a $30 billion fixed income asset manager. She graduated from Cornell University, majoring in pre-law with a minor in economics. Now that we know her background, some key takeaways from the conversation include Flory and I just getting very real about careers in crypto, female representation in the space, why language matters when it comes to crypto and mass adoption, and Flory breaks down some tangible pieces of advice for founders to grow and scale their businesses without sacrificing culture. Flory has been a part of a ton of different podcasts, has joined multiple interviews, is constantly profiled and talked about. But I promise you, you are going to hear some different takes, some spicy thoughts in this episode of What the Fintech. I hope you enjoy. Flory, welcome to What the Fintech. Thanks for having me. I'm super pumped. Yes. Thank you so much for joining us. To start, where are you working from and how are you feeling today? I'm feeling a lot better. Uh, You know, I had COVID a couple of weeks ago and so had to balance my deep desire to get back to work with the need for rest. And I would say that I I have a a hard time finding my chill. Um, So (laughs) feeling a lot better was at South by Southwest this weekend with our amazing marketing team. So right now I'm back in Park Slope in Brooklyn um, and we have kind of a nice day outside. So I can see spring heading our way. Uh, I know. I get excited about each sunny day that happens or any day that I can actually walk outside and not wear like my biggest winter coat. If you're watching this, you're you're seeing it now because I'm getting like a sunbeam. I don't I don't record a lot of podcasts at uh, at 10 a.m. But so this is the this is me under <laughs> seeing this the sunbeam that I get in the mornings. But 
I love it. I'm like feeling warm. I, I love the sunlight. So it's really exciting. But thank you so much for sharing that. Uh, I'm also located in BK. So we're, we're close by kind of. But yeah, so I want to also maybe start by talking about kind of you growing up as a generalist. I love that. I feel like that's like a, just a great tagline. And, and maybe, you know, we can create courses around how does, you know, one grow up a generalist. But you know, explain to us what that kind of means for you and how that really opens up the doors for maybe more people understanding that career paths aren't so linear. Yeah. Growing up, I was pretty good at a lot of different things. And I think what stressed me out, especially going to a competitive high school or even comparing myself to my younger sister, who from the age of four, she knew she wanted to be an architect. I never had any kind of like defining passion like that. I've always been good at problem solving, be it like figuring out how to fix a toilet on my own to how do I manage a team of 200 people. And it can be, I think it can be really stressful, but especially when you're in high school, because sometimes there can be young people around you who have a very clear vision for what they want to do. And when you're a generalist, it can be stressful because I kind of felt like there were a lot of different jobs that I could do. And I didn't know how I would identify what I was supposed to go into if I had never tried it. And so actually, when I did end up founding a company, that was really the first time that I realized that being good at a lot of different things is actually perfect for being a COO or a founder because your job changes every three months, right? You kind of have to wipe the slate clean, replace yourself and then say, okay, what's the next thing I have to build? And so that mentality really comes in handy later on in your career, even if it's um, a little bit stressful in the beginning stages to kind of figure out where you're supposed to fit in. Mm -hmm. When did entrepreneurship or building companies click then for you when you were like, oh, wow, this is a, I can do this. This is like a viable career option, right? I can, I can build companies and wipe that slate clean and, and start again. And yeah, when did that maybe moment come for you? Because I think we're getting to a place where more, you know, young people need to, to see that as, a, as an option and, you know, not just say, oh, I have to only be passionate about one thing or I have to know exactly what I want to do. Because you're right, that's a lot of pressure to put on a young person, to put on anyone, right? To say, oh, I have to only be good at, one thing. So the reality is that, and I've never had kids with people say this, that you're never ready to become a parent. I think it's the same thing founding a company. I don't think anyone that starts a company for the first time feels like, oh, I have everything I need to be a founder. What ended up happening for me was I worked at a startup and whenever I was working, would look around the room and think about who in this room, whose career would I like to have? and then try to watch them and learn as much as I could about them just throughout my professional experience. So when I worked at Bond Street, I really gravitated towards the CEO and just kind of watching him and like, what's his schedule like? What are his skill sets? What was his career like before this? What was the catalyst for him? And I remember one day we went out for coffee and he was like, I could totally see you founding a company. And that kind of took me by surprise because I hadn't seen that in myself yet. And so when it came time to start BlockFi, I always knew that I wanted to start a company. And I thought that seems like a cool job to have in terms of being able to control what the culture is like, what the team is like, and what the strategy is like. 
And when I had the opportunity to start this and I met with Zach and he had this idea, I remember thinking that in my plan, I was planning to start a company later in my career, not at 25. And I, and I thought to myself, like, I don't know if I have enough experience to do this. But the reality about starting a company is that the experience comes with the job, right? So you're going to have a little bit of imposter syndrome the first six months that you do that. I felt uncomfortable saying that I was a founder until I had a team around me. I, I thought it wasn't like fair to call myself that until I actually could show that I had built something. And so for those of you who are listening, who are thinking about doing it yourself, you kind of just have to throw yourself into it. And I do believe that if an opportunity comes across your door, even if you're not fully prepared to kind of go with your instincts and know that you can figure it out on the job. Yeah, there's something to taking that leap of faith in yourself, regardless of how much imposter syndrome you have to battle. And I remember talking with someone um, who's like the editor in chief of a big uh, publication and we were at dinner and he was like, that imposter, he's in his fifties. He's like, I'm in my fifties, that imposter syndrome. It doesn't go away. It just, it's here. And like, so you have to just like acknowledge it and like get through it and move on. And it's, and I was like, okay, I think that's comforting, Um, but it, it makes sense, I guess, the, for that one. And I think it's kind of healthy to have it, right? Because if you're, if you're worried about what else you need to learn, chances are you're constantly growing. And so I think it's healthy to kind of look around the room and be like, okay, what are other skill sets that other people in my role have that I don't have? And how can I develop those? Right. Leaning on, you know, people that have strengths that you don't, right? That is huge. A lot of people think when I first like left my previous job and started with the fintech, a lot of people thought I did this by myself. People thought, and people were like, like the DMs and the messages were like, oh, you're so brave. What a risk that you've taken. And I was like, okay, is this a compliment? Um, but you know, it's, but no one, I had to keep telling them, I was like, no, I have, like, I have a team. Like there are people behind me. Like I didn't take those really cool pictures myself. Like I had a photographer and someone and a creative director and a whole thing. I didn't even pick my outfit. Like someone helped me with my outfit that day. So I want to talk to you about that because, you know, I, right. You have come to realize that teams are key. And, you know, I know you get asked also just about being, you know, a first gen American with parents that are immigrants from Argentina. I, I have a mom uh, who's an immigrant from the Philippines, so I can relate. And I understand, I think from a young age, my mom kind of instilled that in me, like surround yourself with the best people surround yourself, right? They say, be this, you want, you, you don't want to be the smartest person in the room. You want to see like you want to be around the smartest people in the room, I guess, or, or that type of thing. So, you know, how did you kind of like build that that village around you so that BlockFi could become the amazing powerhouse that it is? I think that not all companies and teams are created equal. And so it's very important to surround yourself with people who lift you up. I think especially, you know, I'm in the minority being a female founder in a crypto company. I think it's like, under 10% of crypto founders identify as women. And what is so important is the team and going with your instincts. So I think one of the, I always say that the thing that has made BlockFi as successful as it is today is our team and the fact that we have people who are extremely intelligent, but at the same time, humble. We kind of have like an all hands on deck mentality and that like no job is too small. 
But really, if you look closely at the partnership that I have with my co-founder, what was so important to me about deciding to work with him is finding someone who was my complement. And so I think the reason why we work so well together and even almost five years later still have a great co-founding relationship is because our skill sets are complementary, right? So he comes from more of a sales background. He's amazing at um, speaking with investors and fundraising. And I come from an operational background. So he likes to look out while I like to look in. Um, Mm -hmm. We have very clear delineations of like what our responsibilities are. And we also, I think, pull each other in the right direction. So some of his strengths are my weaknesses and some of my strengths are things that he could be better at. And we're very humble about what can we learn from the other person, going back to what you were saying, right? Acknowledging that you can't be the smartest person in the room at everything and always looking around your team and saying, what can I learn from this person? And if we go back to being the child of like immigrants who really can't help in the same ways that parents who grew up in the U.S. can. Everything from going to college and trying to figure out what courses I should take or what Mm -hmm. I should major in, there were a lot of things that I kind of had to figure out on my own. So I think that tendency for me to look around the room and say, okay, I can't access this knowledge from my parents. Who else can I learn it from? Definitely plays into how I work today. That's kind of even a revelation for me. I must have been operating like that myself and kind of, yeah, like my, you know, my mom has all these plenty of strengths, mom, if you're listening, but yeah, there's definitely at the end of the day, there's always going to be things that, you know, not everyone has everything right that, um, and maybe you look to others to be able to help kind of build yourself in, in other ways and kind of grow. And, uh, that's, that's really cool. Really going into the fact, how does it feel when you get like, pointed out as one of the the only crypto female founders like of a crypto company in the space that you said that and that just like stuck out to me so much <laughs> i feel two different things so on one end i definitely am a little bit disappointed because i want there to be more representation i do think that we are still in the early stages of this industry developing and so That kind of leads to my second feeling, like a huge sense of responsibility to get out there and talk about my experience so that hopefully other people who aren't currently represented in this industry listen to me speak and think, hey, I could do this. If she can do this, I can do this or I can figure it out. And so my sense of responsibility, I also feel two different types of responsibility One is to get additional people to work in the space who come from traditional backgrounds and to know that you can pivot into it. No one's a crypto expert. It's a great time to get in and learn from the ground level. And the second sense of responsibility is just converting people to own crypto for the first time. So I think because um, the industry is so skewed towards white men in their 30s or 40s, There's a certain type of language that people use when they're talking about crypto or trying to describe it as an investment opportunity. And so I feel that my responsibility is to talk about crypto in regular English in a way that people can understand and hopefully make it digestible for an audience that currently isn't represented in the space. Oh, I love that. It's um, 
Yeah, I, I draw a lot of inspiration from what you said just for my my own content. You know, it's like I the, the the between the jargon and you're right. I love that you related it to language. I think we've learned in the last uh, few years that you know what you say matters and language is so important and you know and the message that you put out there is 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 more important than than you know you may realize and the power it has in social media and all the things. I think about that with my own content and like I, why can't fintech content be feminine? Why can't I talk about it like I would to a friend at a bar or whatever? And you know, I'm glad that that's resonating. And so I love that you're kind of bringing that to the space. Does that responsibility ever feel like weighing? I guess it, it can, right? From your end, does it? Because especially because crypto is just like, just like growing like crazy right now. <laughs> Do you ever feel like, oh man, this is all pressure? <laughs> <laughs> Um, yes, I think it is a lot of pressure. To be totally honest, it was a lot harder in the early stages. So naturally, I'm not a huge public speaker. I'm not someone who was ever like, I want to be the lead in this play or like in the spotlight. (laughs) And so early on, I actually had like crippling performance anxiety with public speaking specifically. But I put the pressure on myself to say, look, I'm different from from a lot of people in this space. And it's my responsibility to get out there to change that. Over time, practice makes perfect. And the more you do stuff, you know, the better you get at it and the easier it is from a pressure perspective. Also, I think if you're starting a company or you're, you're in a high pressure job, if you look at the full like mountain of everything that you have to build and what's coming at you, that can cause a lot of anxiety. So Mm -hmm. uh, personally, what I tend to look at is just like the 10 steps ahead of me, right? Like, obviously, you have to have a vision for the long term. But I tend to focus on what do I need to get done today? What do I need to get done this week? When it comes to like this, this podcast, like instead of thinking of like, the number of listeners that you have, I'm just like, I'm just talking to Nicole. It's a one hour conversation. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Okay. I love that. Wait, that is such good advice. I am going to take, I'm, I'm taking that one uh, with me. I'm writing that down. Um, and it, I, it's like, uh, you know, I can't help but just think of the wise words of Miley Cyrus from The Climb. You know, it's, it's, it's The Climb. It's about looking at the journey and not, uh, and I feel that I, it can be hard, right, to be like, oh, well, I need to hit this many subscribers or, oh, hey, I'm, I'm the Block Life founder. I need to hit this many users or whatever. And so instead just thinking, okay, well, what do I have to get done today? What do I have to get done in this next week? What do I have to almost like that incremental version, right? To help you climb to the the top of that mountain, if you will. Um, Oh, I love it. I love it. Okay. So I also want to address uh, the Russia-Ukraine conflict and war that's happening that is just like so just distressing and, and terrible. And we're seeing it play out in real time right now. So I wanted to ask you your thoughts on that and just would love maybe some thoughts and, and leadership there on crypto being, uh, you know, helpful to the crisis situation. And, you know, we're seeing, you know, millions of donations going out there and the Ukraine kind of political leadership even saying, you know, hey, like we're taking donations via whether it's NFTs or whatever. And so kind of just thought thoughts on crypto relating to that situation and how it's been helping people. Yeah, the, the situation with Ukraine is is definitely very, very stressful and unfortunate. And I think when it relates to crypto, 
I do think in the U.S., especially when we're talking about financial products, we tend to have a very U.S.-centric view. So I think what I appreciate about this topic is that we can really see the power of being able to transfer assets instantly overseas without having to use a partner bank. We've been working on that at BlockFi since day one, right? Our first product was to make a U.S. dollar loan which you could have funded in stablecoin, which meant that from the moment that we launched, I could give someone access to US dollar credit at a low interest rate in any country in the world. And that was novel for fintech. As it relates to Ukraine, there's two ways in which crypto is very helpful. The first is exactly what you said, the ability to make a direct donation instantly Um, without having to worry about going through the banking system. And the second thing is also the ability to hold your own assets and take them with you. So if you are a Ukrainian citizen and you are displaced for the first time ever, if you use an app like BlockFi or if you're holding Bitcoin or Stablecoin, you can take those assets with you on your phone and access them in whichever country you end up at. And I think that that's extremely powerful and something that would not have been possible before these types of products or the the apps built off of these products existed. And in addition, if, if you're facing hyperinflation, which is something I'm really focused on because my family's from Argentina and I've seen firsthand what happens when you undergo hyperinflation, um, the ability to access stable coins Um, So that's like the U.S. dollar equivalent asset that you can access on the blockchain that gives every individual the ability to escape an unstable currency instantly. So there's a lot of benefits in terms of the individual power from a financial perspective and independence that people have today as a result of this technology. Yeah, well said. What has always made me excited about the crypto space, about stable coins, about just, you know, the, the alternatives, I guess, to uh, fiat currency is the uh, ability of what kind of the underlying technology does for financial inclusion. And that is something that I like every, I imagine almost every crypto founder, we hope, uh, thinks about. But it's definitely something that you think about, right? Like all the time. Why is stable coins so exciting from that financial inclusion perspective? So the first is just being able to access the stability of the U.S. dollar instantly. So anyone who's been to Argentina or a country that has an unstable currency knows that in other countries, people really operate in physical U.S. dollars, right? If you're traveling to that country, you have to take out cash before you go there, right? And it's actually in Argentina very difficult to get U.S. dollars into the country. The government limits the amount that you can bring in per individual to $200 per month. So the downside, the, the limiting factor for them, so we're going through a little bit of inflation in the US, that's not what hyperinflation is. Hyperinflation is when, like for example, in Argentina, when I went, when I went there and I was younger, the exchange rate to the dollar would be one to two. So for every dollar, it would be two pesos. The last time I went down there right before COVID hit, the exchange rate was like one to 85. So what that meant was that 
if you were a young individual who had been saving, your savings are worth a lot less and your purchasing power is a lot smaller than what it was if it had just sat in your bank account in the peso. And so with stable coins, there's a statistic that says that for US dollar denominated corporate debt, so the amount of US dollars that are being lent overseas, that demand is around 14 trillion. We have never been able to look at what that demand is on an individual level because US companies like fintechs can't lend overseas to individuals. And so with stable coins, it offers two things that are really exciting. One is it allows individuals to escape hyperinflation or unstable currencies instantly just by using their cell phones. And the second thing is that now individuals can access U.S. credit, like let's say to buy a home or to pay for student loans in a way that they've never been able to before. Yeah, yeah, really, really cool and well said and explained, right? And, and kind of going back to just being able to actually like express this in a, in a way that is digestible for, for everyone. Well, I'm, I'm excited to kind of see, you know, how it all plays out, how we, uh, as an industry, right, I often call on, on fintech leaders in the space to be, it's up to us, right, to be able to actually like bring this messaging down to, you know, help people understand how they can leverage this I mean that that difference in in you know currency is is wild. When you were saying that with with Argentina, I was thinking about because of COVID, I haven't been to the Philippines since 2018. I remember at the time it was uh, a U.S. dollar was uh, I think it was like 53 or 55 pesos at the time over there. And so yeah, it's like it goes back to thinking of you know we always do think about things in a in our U.S. centric way, but I think we don't always realize how fortunate we are, right? Like we don't always think about that. Even when the Russia-Ukraine conflict was starting to, you know, even just hit news wires, I feel like it felt very weird to immediately think about our stock market. Uh, that always that felt a little odd. I was like, wait, guys, it's like, okay. But um, so anyways, there's a lot to that. But thank you for for answering, answering my questions there. Um, I kind of want to move on to the BlockFi's Real Talk Women and Crypto survey. Um, I reported about it in my newsletter. Really awesome stats there. I believe this is the second iteration of it. So we love to see it. I think one of the parts that was, uh, to me, most interesting is that you know, interest right, in, in women wanting to be in those uh, crypto career paths. And thank goodness, we we really need you. So if you're listening, please, please, yes, <laughs> do please feel free to join join the ride. It's it's a lot of fun. So why do you think that I guess women are getting more excited about that that crypto career journey? Uh, I believe the survey was one in ten women survey believe crypto is the most promi- promising career sector, which is double the amount of respondents who said fintech. So I mean, I guess I maybe don't blame them <laughs> considering crypto's hot right now. So thoughts there. <laughs> Yeah, I think what was really exciting about the survey, and as I said at the beginning, look, there's a lot more work that we need to do in order to really have healthy inclusion in crypto. But what we saw is that there's been a really positive trend in the last six months. So um, when we asked six months ago, people who identify as women, if they knew about crypto, only 23% said yes. And today, 
now it's 46%. So it's a huge uptick. I think what drives it is two separate things. The first is the fact that 50% of women say that they rely on conversations with their friends and family to inform their financial decisions. And I think that this is true of most demographics, right? If you're thinking about how do I invest or what's the best savings account for me to be using or uh, should I download Robinhood? Um, you're probably going to go to your friends and family to ask them what they do and maybe find the person who is the savviest investor and try to follow in their footsteps after maybe like five to 10 conversations. And so I think what's happened is if there is kind of like structural exclusion, so only one demographic plays in the space, it's really hard to break into other demographics who aren't represented because everyone's bouncing off of their friends and family and none of them are investing. And so I think what's ended up happening is that, and what makes me excited is that for every individual that you convert into the space, I think there's this exponential impact of them circulating, hopefully circulating the knowledge to their friends and family and converting other people. And so I hope that we see an acceleration hopefully in the data that we're tracking of women represented in crypto. The second thing that I think has happened over the last six months is you're starting to see Bitcoin specifically consistently referred to in mainstream media. So when I first started BlockFi, um, the way that people would talk about crypto would be like the CEO of a large bank saying that it's like a fraud and no one should own it. Today, if you're reading like the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal and getting up to speed on markets, you're seeing people say like, oh, like, you know, Facebook stock dropped down and it's even more volatile than Bitcoin. And you're seeing it referred to in a regular article about investment. And so I think it is becoming part of like the everyday language. Uh, you're seeing it talked about more in TV, not just in the sense of like, what is Bitcoin and how do you invest in it, but in the context of investing in general. And I think that that will lead more and more people who maybe weren't thinking about it or talking about it five years ago to move into the space for the first time. We are going to take a short break to share a message from our friends over at Yield Street. Evolving markets require an alternative approach to investing. Cut through the volatility with Yield Street investments that target fixed durations and income generation. Explore investments in art, real estate, venture capital, and more, with minimums starting at $500 and targeting annual yields of up to 18%. Discover the difference of a diverse portfolio with Yield Street. Now, back to the show. There's a lot of demystifying that has to go in, right, to the, to the crypto space, and I try really hard with my content to do that. There is, like, this... I feel like maybe the mainstream conception is that it's a very like bro-y, get rich quick situation, right? And luckily we're seeing, I think, that that conversation shift, right? As more, right, women get interested in, in career paths, as more, you know, people talk about it. You know, I do everything that I can to, to say like, no, we need you, please come through. Um, you know, and this, this it's not just like a bro-y club, because if you were to actually like look deep, right, there's... Um, that's just who ends up maybe getting the attention. That's who's maybe TikTok goes viral. But really, there's like there's way more uh, to the space, and there's like there's so many amazing women, there's so many amazing people of color, there's people from 
different countries and, and things doing doing amazing things. And if you like look deeper at the data, it's really like, you know, Bitcoin is and, and cryptocurrency and the underlying blockchain technology really has this, you know, amazing ability to help create a more equitable society, you know, via financial services. And that that's what's really exciting. And that, you know, I think that message can help maybe more women to say like, oh yeah, like that's what I want to get into. I want to help with that. And I know that's how, what got me like sticking around in fintech. People ask me all the time, why just, why, why keep talking about fintech? And I'm like, cause of that. <laughs> so hopefully that message keeps kind of going across and helps. Right. I think if the other thing, like if that message, there's so many reasons to own it. I think about ownership and access a lot. And I think if that message doesn't land. An- another way to think about it is one of the best ways that I think to learn about something is to either own it or to work in it. And I think sometimes when people talk about crypto and you mentioned the growth, you like log on to an app and there's like 30 different choices of coins that you can buy. It can be very overwhelming, right? If you don't really understand the concept of the technology and people are talking about financial inclusion or, or the future and how this can change demographics, it might be a lot to take in all at once. Mm-hmm. So I think the important thing to underscore is to like, again, go back to like, just look at the 10 steps in front of you. You can start with just $5. One thing I think about is like, how do we create products that make it easy for people to convert into the space? So we have like the crypto rewards credit card where like, you just use a credit card and instead of earning miles, you earn crypto. So you don't even have to spend $5. You can just earn it instead of earning miles. So there's a lot of ways to get passive exposure without putting like an amount of money into it that makes you uncomfortable. And I think that you don't have to understand all of it to own a little bit. And that by owning it, you'll pay more attention to what's it doing? What are the developments in the space? What's happening on the regulatory front? And it will actually help fuel that that learning forward. And the last point is to really think about like, What's the opportunity cost of you not getting mm-hmm. into the space right now? Like if I told you that this was like buying Apple stock 15 years ago, I'm not saying this is not investment advice and <laughs> I don't know what the price is going to do next, but there is a chance that this grows very quickly. And I do think there's a lot of benefits in getting some exposure and just being a part of the conversation just so that you can learn about what's happening in technology and and be up to speed as those developments happen. That makes a lot of sense. And I imagine kind of like, right, those those are two solid messagings that should work and hopefully will as we kind of continue to see the space grow, which, you know, I maybe that's like the messaging, right, that kind of BlockFi gives by being that bridge, right, that connects crypto assets to centralized financial products. And I love that. I love that, like, because I think with crypto language also, there tends to be this like, oh, you're like A to Z right away, right? Like it's super linear. Oh, well, it clicks for you one day and you get you get it. And like, oh, and you all of a sudden are just like a crypto head. And that's not the case all the time. Like people are going to have their own zigzag journeys to either want decentralization or maybe they just want to like own crypto assets and play around, but also have like very centralized financial products. So I feel like you are, you know, right in the middle there. So how do you maybe like address any like misconceptions that BlockFi is a DeFi company? And yeah, kind of going back to like that messaging and and making sure that's super clear and um, what you guys do and offer and help with. Yeah, I think um, education is really 
at the base of everything for us because I think when you're building financial products, the number one thing you have to have from your clients and your investors and from regulators is trust. So if you're not willing to invest in education and clear language and speaking to those three parties in a way that they can understand, your platform's not going anywhere. And so when it comes to talking about our business model, we've invested so much into client service. From day one, we were one of the first companies and still today that has like a phone number where you can call us and just talk to someone. Thank you. (laughs) People need that, right? If you're going to trust us with your funds, you need to be able to pick up the phone and call us if you have a problem or email us or use our chat bot, whichever way, whatever's easiest for you, like we're going to serve you. And one of the things we believe in is like, it doesn't matter what anybody else is doing. It doesn't matter what our competitors are doing. It doesn't matter how fintechs operate. We are going to set the standard for ourselves, meet that standard. And then the second that we hit that goal, we're going to raise it again. So that's kind of how we ended up with, I do think we have like maybe the best client success team in financial services. We have like 92% like CSATs week after week. And so when it comes to what's our business model and like, are we like other crypto platforms? And so are we a centralized platform or decentralized platform? I do think we try to make it very clear that we're a centralized platform, right? We don't have a token in the model. We funded ourselves by raising traditional VC capital. And I do think that a lot of the work that we've done on the regulatory front would not have been able to move forward had we not adopted the model that we use today. Yeah. And and just really kudos to you, right? Because it's like you, BlockFi had to be, right, this kind of uh, almost like a original model, if you will, or like that first kind of uh, go at connecting these two kind of, I guess, different worlds, if you will, and almost like introducing, right, to, to the space and creating that snowball effect or that conversation. It's like, if BlockFi hadn't started, maybe we wouldn't see some of the things we're seeing today. Yeah. And it was not a popular decision at the time. So in 2017, right, like people building in crypto were like super into like blockchain and they were like almost like religious about it. Like unless you're building it on a blockchain protocol, like you're not real crypto. And so when we came into the space, the two things that were really scary were like, listen, like we're going to use a traditional model to build this. And I think whenever you're building a company, a really good question to ask yourself is like, does this make sense? Because sometimes there'll be trends around you that seem tempting. But if it doesn't make sense to you, um, especially in a new industry in like crypto where people are testing things and sometimes things gain momentum and then they don't work out and sometimes things gain momentum and do really work. It's really important to ask yourself, like, does this make sense? And so for me, I knew that even though raising funds the traditional route was going to be harder, right? Like we had to talk to 70 to 100 investors to get our seed round. It took months. We got a lot of no's. <laughs> it's heartbreaking. You just keep going. And on the other hand, you had crypto projects that were raising tokens and getting like $30 million overnight. The thing I always think about is like one of the first crypto conferences that we went to, a competitor of ours at the time had like a literal billboard in Times Square And Zach and I, they had $30 million. Zach and I had spent months just to get $1.5 million. And we had a little booth, like no posters, nothing printed, 
with like black and white one pagers that I made and printed in our office. (laughs) And we just showed up and I was like, all right, like this is what we got. And yeah, it is very difficult to trust that your instincts are correct. But I think with, with us, we were always thinking about how does this model play out five years from now, right? If I start with traditional VC capital, I'll be able to continue to fundraise as my business grows. And also I'll only be able to fundraise the amount of capital that I need at that point in time, because I'll have to like hit certain metrics to get to the next level. So it ended up working out for us. But I think like in the moment, it's definitely scary to make those decisions. It can be really intimidating. I have recently been adopting the mantra of being inspired by people that feel like competitors or like that intimidate me as opposed to being intimidated. And that can be, you know, that's a whole thing. But yeah, it can be hard. You see someone, maybe someone that has like, you know, a ton of followers or subscribers and you're like, I want to get there too one day or like for you, right? It was maybe seeing a competitor like with a picture in Times Square or whatever it is and being like, okay, will we ever get there? But yeah, it can be more helpful to just like, cool, that's an inspiration. Just zero in on what you're doing. I, you know, and and kind of keep going and remember those 10 steps that that you're kind of aiming towards. But yeah, I mean, you, you know, because you kept going forward, like then you guys end up being the successful BlockFi that you are today, being the the trailblazer in the space, you know, being the ones to, you know, either you go through go through the times, right? Like you've gone through things to be able to to get to this point, and and that's a good message, I think, for anyone in any industry. Is like, it's not just some you know rosy picture the whole way through. There's hard times, there's good times, there's highs and lows. I have a month of imposter syndrome sometimes. Sometimes I'm. I'm like a bad bitch all day. Like it takes, it's, you know, it's like so fluctuating. I think we need to always remember that things aren't so like binary. And yeah, I think that's just like such a message for the fintech space, but like any founder to to remember that, that journey. Yeah, we joke around internally. Sometimes we're like with senior people and we're like in like, what is my job today? <laughs> um, right, like, there's like no job too small. And so you're going to get pulled in a ton of different directions. Like there are going to be days where you feel like the world is crumbling around you or you're thrown into a situation that you've never managed before. And you're like, all right, I don't know how to do this, but 800 people are relying on me to figure it out. And the reality is that like time is so long. And one thing I always tell my team is that what I can promise you is that the challenges that you're facing today are going to be like fundamentally different than where we are a year from now. And I think that's true for any scaling business that even at times where something feels overwhelming or impossible to solve, to like remember that moment and then think back on it a year later because your life will be completely different. Oh yeah, right. I mean, that is also great advice because and and very applicable. We've we've seen, right, how that is and sometimes it even happens in like months, right? Like the I had no idea that when I started with the fintech in November with zero, like nothing, nada, that, you know, fast forward to however many months it is now that it's it's March, right? Like in just a few months to have, you know, 9,000 subscribers or, you know, have these things, start a season two of a, of a show that is coming up, although this is season one finale. Hey, but anyway, so 
yeah, that's really good advice, I think, for anyone doing literally anything. Um, so I, I love that. So, okay, I know we're closing in here on time. I'm going to um, maybe kind of ask some maybe more like spitfire questions for you. So the first one is, what do you think people misunderstand about the fintech and author-owned crypto too, industry? Uh, that you need fintech or crypto experience to work in the space. So I think there's like this illusion that like financial products are like, super difficult to learn and like you can only work in it if you like got like the internship your like junior year at like jp morgan and if you like missed that internship like ship has sailed sorry there's so many skill sets that are like applicable to this space and any employer that's not able to see that that like oh if you work in logistics like you can actually use those skills and apply to operations at a fintech that's not the person you should be working for so yeah, I think that's a huge misconception. I'm trying to fix that with my company and I hope others do too. I love that. I have a friend who recently, she's in marketing and I connected her with uh, like a financial services company uh, for her to you know find kind of the right place. And she's been struggling in the, in the job market a bit, but she's so freaking talented. And she was like, before she did a, an interview, she was like, Nicole, I don't know anything about financial services. And I was like, yeah, that doesn't matter. You know a hell of a lot about marketing and you're really good at it. Focus on that. Like That's what matters. So I love that advice. It's so true. Let's see. If you could do anything differently, would you, if you were starting from scratch? Yeah, there's so many learnings when you're starting from <laughs> scratch. I think like a huge big learning for me was definitely like helping myself and my team to avoid burnout. So really learning like what's the right pace of working and to know that it's like, it is a lot better to give like a solid 80, 85% than it is to do like 110% zero. And so I think that's a big one. We definitely found the right rhythm. And I I honestly probably am better at like forcing other people to take vacation than I am with myself. Mm -hmm. Um, So like what we do at BlockFi is like, I'll I'll look out now for burnout or like measure how long it's been since people took vacation. And I do think it's like the manager's responsibility to say like, hey, like you need to leave like next week. Like don't care where you go. We did that very early in COVID. Um, because a lot of people stopped taking vacation because they couldn't travel. And so very early in COVID, we're like, you're still taking vacation. Like, don't care what you're doing. Don't care if you're watching Netflix or a TV show. You just like can't log on. And I will look out for you logging on and I will stop you. Um, <laughs> so I think starting from scratch, I would definitely like tell my younger self, like it's a marathon, not a sprint. I think team structure wise, there are a couple key learnings where we definitely tend to be like uncompromising during our interview process. Like I tend to wait for that magical moment when you meet someone and you're like, Oh, I can't wait to start working with them tomorrow. Yeah. Um, And I think that like really fostering that very, very early on is important. I love that. I, I want to like wake up and have uh, a vacation week scheduled for me by my manager. That is a, every company should do that. Exactly. Okay. So then my next one for you is what do you think the next 30 years hold for fintech, for crypto? 30 years. That's a, that's a little bit of a harder uh, outlook in my opinion than just like five or 10. <laughs> yeah. That's what I wrote down we're gonna, here. My questions. We're going to have to talk in like really broad, like yeah, we're gonna be- here. 
Um, <laughs> so one of the things I randomly was thinking about this weekend at South by Southwest was over the last 30 years, what's happened is as a result of like technology and information being easier to access on a global scale, what we've seen is that global markets have become increasingly correlated. So mm -hmm. it's like the stock market in the US has a higher correlation with stock markets in Europe than ever before. So if I were to play that trend out to financial services, what I think is going to happen is we're going to see this trend of US grade financial services that used to only be available in US markets, um, more available on a global scale because of the rise of technology. And there's a lot of cool companies that are doing this. So last week I was on a panel with Shivani, um, who's mm -hmm. the founder of Tala. Oh, do you know her? The app that does... Um, yeah, I'm going to actually, I get to meet her for the first time like next week. So I'm very excited. That's very cool. Oh my gosh. <laughs> she is very, very cool. I won't like spoil <laughs> your conversation there, but basically they do like a lending app that helps people in underserved communities all around the world. You're just starting to see that rise really pick up steam today. And so I think that basically over the next 30 years, what I hope to see is that people's financial lives start to look more similar on a global scale than they do today. So in the same way that in the US, like I can download an app or have like access to like any type of credit card with any type of rewards that I want, I would love to see that access spread out on a global scale. And I think that a lot of the innovation that we're seeing today will allow us to head in that direction. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I get really excited about like the future of fintech helping kind of the helping the international markets and us. That's, that's really cool. I like like the connectivity behind that and all of us kind of being in a similar, almost like, I guess, boat or, or uh, having that, that playing field. Um, yeah, that's awesome. Love, love that one. Love that prediction. Can't wait to see what the crystal ball happens in 30 years. Um, how do you balance, and you maybe touched on this a little bit, but how do, is there anything else, I guess, outside of maybe the good practices that you've already mentioned for how you balance that company culture and values while also scaling a fast-growing fintech? I think that you absolutely have to do two things. One is like really clearly define what those values are and be uncompromising during the interview process, right? So early on, now it's been translated to no ego because I wasn't allowed to write it this way on the website, but we had like a no assholes policy. And <laughs> it is so important to hold on to that value because all it takes is like one asshole to make like everybody's work lives a lot more difficult on a daily basis. And that like changes, like if you have one person on the team that's dragging everybody else down, it really impacts like the high performing people who are there to like show up and do their best work mm -hmm. every day because they're distracted by interacting with that individual. Um, so I think defining your values very early on, making sure that you're uncompromising when it comes to hiring, and then also leading from the top down. It took me a little while to know that like people want to hear from you and maybe the things that are obvious to you as a founder that like live in your brain are not going to be obvious, especially as your company scales and you're no longer working side by side with the individuals, right? It's a lot easier when you're 20 people all crammed into one room and mm -hmm. like sharing a desk that's supposed to be for one person. <laughs> um, <laughs> like as you're 850, like you have to be front and center 
They have to hear you speak. They have to hear how you think about things. And you just have to constantly reinforce, these are our values. This is what you have to be focusing on. And this is what it takes to be successful here. Oh, such good pieces of advice. The I, I like the two main takeaways. One, like open comms from leadership to the employee base. I feel that as well, like working for a startup too. Um, and it it means the world of difference when my, you know, I have a one-on-one with my CEO and CEO or my founders. And we, even if it's literally just to talk like about our feelings, like it helps. Uh, and then the second one is just like no assholes. That's, that's an easy one and no asshole policy. Uh, every company should adopt that one. And this one's a little maybe more personal for you. Um, how do you balance maybe your own mental health, health with the high demands of founder life? So I think three things here. Uh, one is like in the exercise is like so important to me. And sometimes when you're in a high stress job, that's like the first thing to go, right? You're yeah. like, I need yeah. an extra hour of sleep, like screw the gym. Um, <laughs> but I actually think that like being uncompromising in the early days, I like promised myself, I was like, this company will not take my body. <laughs> I was like, I'm not going to give up like my like physical fitness. And that was like very important. And so I actually have like an awesome trainer that I've seen the entire time and he like keeps me accountable. And like, I definitely think that, that that's worth it. If that's something um, that's possible for you and also therapy. Um, I've gone to therapy once a week since the beginning. And I think that a lot of times people who haven't tried therapy don't realize that like this is an individual who you can just like end the work day and just like spew <laughs> everything at like here's all the things I'm stressed about and just like bounce ideas off of and I think that's super important especially if you're like in a high stress like management situation where it's so important to be self-aware and understand like how your communication style might impact others and the third thing I think is like really prioritizing your personal relationships. So one thing I underestimated when I was starting BlockFi is that even if the time that you spend working is about the same, like if you're in a very, a job that requires a lot of time for you, the energy is different when you are responsible for something, right? Mm -hmm. Um, When you're working at a job, you can sign off and be offline until someone calls you back in. When you are responsible, like you are, Nicole, for... (laughs) what we're doing here today, it never sleeps, right? Mm -hmm. And so that is going to take energy from you in a way that nothing has before. And so I think being very intentional about your relationships and your friendship and knowing, okay, I might not have time for like, as many friends as I did before, but I'm going to be really concentrated and intentional about my closest friends and making sure that I'm still investing time into them, I think is really, really important. Wow. I mean, and you just kind of hit all the all the points, right? Physical and mental health and your personal relationships. So like not only I think it's easy to lose yourself a little bit, right? When you're when you're building something. And um, so just prioritizing you, prioritizing the people that are you know closest to you and your loved ones. And um, yeah, remaining healthy in, in those ways. I love it. I love it. Okay, so my final question for you, Flory, is please tell us what the F we can expect from you and BlockFi next couple things. I'm very excited that this year we're really making a push to expand more internationally. So around like 30% of our clients are from overseas, but we've never actively marketed. So we're really focused on international clients. We're also going to be one of the first companies to register the BlockFi yield products so that people in the US can earn interest on their crypto 
and we're the first company to figure out how to regulate that product. We're adding a ton of new assets for trading on the platform. We're adding more features on the credit card. And uh, lastly, very pumped to launch uh, BlockFi Ventures. So we're basically investing in early stage startups in the crypto space. We've already made 15 investments. And I just think it's amazing to you know be able to lift up other founders in the community. Yes, oh, yes. Oh, and awesome. yes, more. <laughs> I, my head of people would kill me if I didn't mention this, but we also, <laughs> we talked about so much, so much about inclusion. We have a hundred roles open. You don't wow. need crypto experience to, to come. We believe that like we should teach you about our products. So definitely like check us out. Would love to see more people that identify as women applying. And yeah, would love to see that. Oh my gosh. Okay. That was that was so much. There was so much in there. I love it. That was a one of the best like responses to that my final question that I've heard. So much, so much fullness. Um, but yeah, no, you should share any um like job opportunities. I can definitely link to them in the show notes here. I can share it in my newsletter because yes, 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 yes. Let's get that message out there. Um, I love it. Thank you so much, Flory, for joining me. That is a wrap on this episode and thank you to our listeners for tuning in if you loved this episode be sure to hit that subscribe button you can find me on all your favorite podcast platforms until next time talk to you all soon